Well, welcome to the Gather Global podcast, Karen Lunn and Sue Shapcott. And before we start with any of the formal questions, I am led to believe that both of you were collectively in some sort of band together in the past, many moons ago. So Karen, I think you're going to have to explain that one to us, can you? <laughs> uh, I think a band might be stretching it a little bit, but uh, yeah, uh, during, I can't remember, it must have been early 90s when we used to go to Asia. Obviously back then there was no internet you know, no no English TV in the hotel. So you just had to keep yourselves amused. So often we'd go to these karaoke places and myself and my sister Marty and Sue and her sister Ali, we formed this foursome that, that was in karaoke. We were called the Crap Lums. <laughs> and uh, it was very funny. We were, all, we were all terrible singers, but we had a good laugh. So, and, and many others have had a laugh at our expense, I think, as well. So uh, we had some great, great memories, uh, yeah, going back a lot of years. Thank goodness the internet wasn't around then because... Think what could be floating around on social media if it was. Oh, my God. Can you imagine it? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, maybe we can do a sort of reunion band tour at some point and you can both share your karaoke with us. And uh, brilliant to say that today we have somehow managed to coordinate a podcast conversation across three very different time zones uh, from America to Greece to Australia. So this truly is a, a global version of the podcast. Great. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Yep, we just pulled it off. So, Karen, I'm going to start with the first question. What would you like to change about the golf industry, but you can't? Well, I think that a few things. I mean, one of the things I would love to change about golf, if, if I had the power, and obviously I don't have, but would be just golf is golf. Get rid of amateur golf, get rid of professional golf. People just play golf like they play tennis and they play other sports. Um, I think in this country, you know, we have a reputation uh, as golf being very fragmented. We have the amateur bodies, we have the professional bodies. And I think that, you know, if you look at an organization like Tennis Australia or some of our other organizations down here um, and in other places, they just represent the sport. And obviously, somebody a few hundred years ago thought it was a great idea to have amateur golf and, and professional golf uh, separate. And I know there's going to be some changes to the amateur status and everything uh, next year. So I think it's all heading in the right direction. But um, I've never really understood the distinction, really. Obviously, I know what it is. But to me, you're just a golfer. You know, if you're good enough to play in professional events, you should play and be able to get prize money. So I just I think the whole fragmentation in, in the industry is an issue. You know, in this country, it certainly is. And in other countries, I think, as well. And do you think the same thing about the divide between men's and women's? bodies um yeah have they started to merge in australia too yeah we've done a lot of work with uh, gavin kirkman and his team at the pga of australia the last couple of years um we started off with a dual membership program five years ago and that ended in a collaboration agreement the end of last year so we're collaborating across a number of areas commercials the most recent one um so we're still um our own separate bodies but we're working together on a lot of stuff we we rebranded from the alpg to the wpga tour of australasia so that aligns very well with the pga tour of australia our logos you know sit alongside each other and the two tours sit alongside each other so i think that you know Rome wasn't built in a day and none of this is going to change you know overnight but I do think that you know we're heading in the right direction and you know we've had some great results out of the collaboration we've signed a, a deal with Adidas across the whole of professional golf in Australia and more recently with uh, Webex by Cisco again across the whole of professional golf in Australia so I definitely think it's the way forward like I said Gavin and I've worked really hard as our, as our teams and our boards have both been very supportive and this year with, uh, with Golf Australia, the PGA and Golf Australia are actually going to be uh, working under one roof um, later this year. They both had offices in Melbourne and they're going to be working at what will be known as the Australian Golf Centre. Um, so I think here in Australia, we're, you know, hopefully we're leading the way. I think that, you know, we all understand that, you know, we need to work together for the benefit of the game rather than sort of, you know, almost working against each other. You know, we're, we're trying to get events up. The PGA are trying to get events up. Golf Australia are doing their thing. And at times we're, we're pitching against each other for sponsorship and television broadcast and government money and, and stuff like that. It's just absolutely crazy. So I think that there's a, a lot of positive momentum down here. James Sutherland, the, the new CEO of Golf Australia, he's come from a cricket background and obviously cricket is just cricket Australia. So I think it was a bit bemusing to him to, to actually try and get his head around why are there all these different organisations and what do they do? So, yeah, I think we're, we're really heading in the right direction down here. 
Yeah, two things that you said there, Karen, that really stood out for me. The first, I think it was James that you mentioned there from Cricket Australia, you know, someone coming in from outside of our sport and just questioning why would things be done that way. That's something I certainly had personal experience of in Scotland and that made a huge difference at the, the leadership table of a governing body. You had people coming in with fresh perspectives and, and really just sort of questioning the status quo. The second one, you talked about government locating into the same buildings. Again, there's another good example from, from Europe there, actually, where that's something that's happened in Finland. There may be other countries that are considering that too, but certainly their example is quite strong and they've moved three of their main organisations into the one location. And it's simple things that really help, like you know, even just staff members from each organisation get to know each other a bit better and even just you know, sharing birthday parties together and things like that in the building just allows everyone to have a better understanding of, of you know, what they're all working towards. And it makes collaboration so much simpler. Yeah, I really love that. And obviously, as Sue was saying there, you know, this is a real demonstration of obviously both diversity and innovation and the launch of your sort of trailblazing, really, the WPJ mixed event. And what I'm curious to know is who and what got this going? I mean, was it simply just an arrangement, a sort of a collaboration between the PJ and the WPJ, or were there more partners that were influential in making this happen? No, it was um, it was really a couple of guys that worked for the PGA of Australia, Kim Felton and Nick Dasty. They'd been um, working at trying to work on sort of a different concept that represented all all of, I guess, elite golf in Australia rather than just professional golf. And it's really about trying to provide our young players with pathways to, to the other tours. So the idea, uh, the players series, it's called, uh, the events are called. And this year we had two events. Next year we'll be adding at least another one to them. It's, you know, as soon as Kim and Nick mentioned to me about this, I was all across it. You know, I just love the idea. So, yeah, we just, you know, we worked together with the PGA on this project and, and they did most of the heavy lifting, I have to say. But like I said, we launched the two events early this year, 62 professional women, 62 professional men, 10 invites, 10 um, of Australia's elite amateurs playing. And I think the really the really cool thing about this event is on the weekend, we invite 25 juniors to play. So they could be juniors from the club or the state junior team, but they have to be, you know, a certain standard. They come in and play alongside the pros uh, on the weekend. So we have, you know, two professionals or elite amateurs, whoever makes the cut, plus the juniors come in. And that's been a, a real revelation this year um, to watch, you know, how good these kids are. And, you know, playing alongside professionals, it's just such a great experience for them. And there's been some really good relationships forged amongst the players. Um, it's just a really cool atmosphere. Obviously, we've had the Vic Open down here before, which is just a fantastic event. And that, you know, that started, I think, eight or nine years ago now. And that's sort of a different model where we all play at the same venue, but for different trophies and different sets of prize money, whereas the Players Series, everyone plays for the same prize money so uh, yeah it's really cool it's been really um, accepted well in Australia I think our broadcaster down here Fox Sports really love the concept we have a title sponsor for the series now which is again Webex by Cisco who have been great supporters uh, of golf down here yeah so you know we, we're, we're leaning a little bit on governments uh, some corporate sponsors and we've had some great hosts Jeff, Jeff Ogilvy actually hosted our first Players Series event down at Rosebud in Victoria, and he was very hands-on. I think he really liked the idea, but he, you know, he was just amazing. He was um, spending time with the juniors, uh, mentoring them, and he was just a great host. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think the sky's the limit for these events, and I think that, you know, in running professional golf, I think we're all we're all starting to see the signs that we have to do things differently. You know, just that I know that there's a lot of regular 72 hole events in golf, but certainly the messaging we're getting from down here is, you know, we need to mix it up a little bit. We can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. People don't want to sit and watch golf for, for five hours. They want something different to see. And, and this is obviously a different product that, that appeals to a wide range of, of viewers. I, I really love that, you know, Australia led the way in having tournament with men and women playing at the same course and, you know, for the same prize money. And, you know, in my mind, it's just a great way of, of building that mutual res respect between the men and the women on, on tour. And certainly, I don't know about you, but in my playing days, other than a few um, school-type events, we didn't do any kind of mixed events. We never got the chance to play alongside the, the men players and I think that's a that's a great shame so you know it's really exciting to see these events popping up and it's like you said it seems so obvious now that we're doing it why didn't we why didn't we do it before so for other organizations or countries looking to do the same thing what what from what you've learned 
would you share with them to help them kind of move in that direction? I think it's just, you know, just trust your instincts. And, and you know, there'll obviously be people that say, oh, that's rubbish, that's not going to work. You know, you just, it, it, the product's good. And I think that, you know, we went to market with it and we've shown that it can work. And like I said, we've got a great sponsor in Webex out of it who have been absolutely amazing, great hosts. I think the challenge is, and, and it's something that we probably haven't got right yet. And I know probably, you know, the Annika and Henrik event, the Scandinavian, uh, the mixed, Scandinavian mixed, I think it was called, you know, they may have some work to do as well on the scaling the tees for the women. I think that's the that's the hardest thing. So I think that you need to to get as much data as you can. I don't think you can just say, well, the guys hit it about this far, the girls hit it about this far. Let's just throw a, a red tee up there. You know, like would have been done in the past I think that you have to try and get as much data as you can obviously you have long hitters for the men and long hitters for the women and and short hitters if that's that's a really really hard thing is getting the golf course set up fairly and we found um, when the conditions get really tough when the wind is really strong which it was one of the days in Sydney it was tougher for the girls because obviously the club head speed and the ball speed is different and the ball's affected by the wind more so there's a lot of a lot of work has to go into that side of it and I think we've still got a little way to go but yeah Jeff Stewart from the um Graham Stewart sorry from the PGA of Australia he did a lot of work on the course setups this year and a lot of research and yeah I think it's just a work in progress that's really interesting very interesting I mean that's an an obvious thing you think about Karen in terms of the tees for mixed events but as you're discovering there's an even sort of deeper level of nuance that's required for that it's almost a new a new skill set and a new set of um criteria that need to be worked out by the by the industry so you know that's something obviously certainly we've talked about soon that podcast that we had with Carrie Hogg and I know that that's something that you're both looking into now is you know where's the missing insights and data for the industry that will help make those decisions better so hopefully Karen there's some going to be some interesting stuff coming your way that might help with that in the future and um, you know thinking forward now so what would be the biggest example of innovative thinking that you've observed or experienced over the past few years and what did you learn from it well I, I do think the men and the women coming together you know in, in events is obviously I think is you know th- there's certainly a place for men's and women's golf events but I think coming together has been probably one of the most innovative things that that has happened in golf I think you know innovation in our sport has just gone nuts the last 20 years you know you look at clubs and the balls and training aids and um, shot trackers and uh, distance measuring devices and you know it's just absolutely nuts how high tech you know the health monitors and heart rate monitors I mean it's just it's unbelievable how it's changed our sport and the information and access that coaches and um, players advisors have now they're not guessing anymore they you know it's it's so high tech it's unbelievable so I think innovation's changed our game enormously and obviously there's a lot of discussions going on within golfing circles now whether that's actually gone too far in terms of the distances the guys are hitting the ball a lot of golf courses have become obsolete and whether there's a an opportunity to sort of ramp that back. I know um, one of our great players here, Mike Clayton, he's been very outspoken about, you know, he thinks the ball, either the ball or the club needs to be sort of dragged back. So at least, you know, some of the great courses, you know, in 10 years' time, can you imagine how St Andrews is going to be playing if the guys just keep hitting it as, you know, increasing their swing speeds and, and the technology with the clubs? It's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dig into collaboration a little bit more then because obviously you've talked about, your organisation, the PG of Australia, working closer together now, and obviously Golf Australia as well, with the recent strategy session that you described. And, you know, likewise, at the start of the pandemic last year, the leaders of the global tours in golf had to come together and collaborate closer than ever before. They had to find those solutions that could work for everyone, otherwise they were going to be in a real pickle with things. So how would you currently score our industry out of 100, say, in its ability to effectively collaborate for the benefit of the yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably historically been fairly low, but obviously there have there has been a lot of a lot of change and a lot of movement in that space. You know, you, you'd probably be around fifty, I'd say. I think that that's one thing as an industry we've done a, a pretty poor job, even though you know you gave examples of what's gone on in Scotland and in other countries and and what we're doing. And you know, even if you look at the tours, you've got you know the LPGA are obviously working very closely with the Ladies European Tour now, and the Ladies European Tour are working more closely with the European Tour. I think that it's you know it's a no-brainer, and and obviously you've got some like I don't know if it's fair to call them rogue groups of sort of jumped out in the men's professional game trying to set up tours in other places so I think it's really it's really important for all the professional tours uh, that are recognized to work together you know to, that's going to benefit all the players in the long run 
things have changed a lot in the last 20 years. And, you know, I was just thinking, ironically, that's, that's about when we stopped playing. So um, we've missed out on all of this great technology and innovation, but, and it's interesting to think, you know, how, just how much things have changed since those days in Asia singing karaoke. And so, you know, we would never have thought back then that, you know, we'd be using Trapman and we'd have, you know, all of this technology to, to be able to track shots and clubs and, you know, everything else. Where do you think the, the next opportunities are going to come from to, you know, use technology or to collaborate or to kind of for golf to take its next step forward? Well, I think I think if you look at where it's it's heading, I think that the obviously the 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 health monitoring aspect of golf is something that will be used a lot. I think, and I think that one thing that we don't do in golf is promote the health benefits of our game enough to the wider to the golfing audience and to those that don't play as well. So I think that that's that's a really that's a real positive that we can use for our industry to show how golf how good golf is for you. You know, you get outside; it's great for your mental health. You're in the fresh air. But also, you know, when you're walking around of golf, you're actually burning a lot of calories and it's great exercise being out there for, for four or five hours if that's what you want to do. So I think in terms of the technology, like the technology within golf clubs, actually the club having chips in it to, to tell you about the shots and also the ball. I think the ball technology um, is going to change a lot. Yeah, in terms of how we can work together. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a tricky one. Obviously, technology such as what you know we're using today you know, to, to talk to each other. We've just in here in Australia uh, last week uh, had our very first national golf strategy conference, which was driven by Golf Australia and the PGA and ourselves were very involved in that. And uh, all of the stakeholders in the game uh, from states and golf clubs and sponsors and pretty much everyone involved in the game were invited to be a part of it. And we a survey was sent to 10,000 people. Yeah, so, so we're in the process of putting together a national golf strategy. So not a Golf Australia golf strategy or a PGA or WPGA. It's going to be a whole of golf strategy. So I think that I guess in a way that te- the technology has enabled that to happen because we couldn't meet in person. And I think that's, you know, just another example of, of what we're trying to do to, to really grow our sport down here. One of the things you mentioned there, Cara, is around data. And certainly it's something that's coming up a lot now in conversations. People across the different sectors within Gather and across the, the different sectors in the golf industry. There's definitely an acknowledgement now that data can be utilised a lot more effectively to help the golf industry than it currently is and certainly that it has traditionally and one sort of personal theory that I've had is you know so many people in the past and even still now that work within the golf industry are people who've played the game who have a love for the game are very passionate about it and my theory anyway is that on a lot of occasions that leads to decisions being made based on emotion rather than on hard data and really strong insights that can inform the decision-making process. That's why I was kind of fascinated when I saw that post that you made last week about the national sort of strategy, golf strategy session that you've had in Australia. And I was going to ask you, you know, based on previous conversations and sort of attempts to collaborate on the bigger strategy picture, now that you've informed this most recent one with so much robust data, was that a different conversation than you previously had in the past? Or did it feel like you were kind of attacking the, the, the problems and the challenges with more robust information, which could hopefully help you make better decisions for the solutions? Yeah, it was. And it was, um, it was, it was really interesting because the survey that was sent out from Golf Australia was certainly not skewed towards uh, favourable results coming back towards the governing body I mean it was a very open and 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 people were encouraged to be really honest about their answers about the health of our game and I think that you know during the conference we had a lot of breakouts uh, sessions and I think that it's been it's been really eye-opening um you know just reading some of the feedback in the last few days I think the one thing that we've really and also from um organization called the Australian Golf Industry Council which uh, consists of all of the all of the um, golfing bodies here in Australia 
we commissioned a study which was done and the findings were well haven't been released publicly yet but we've seen them is the importance of alternative formats and public facilities in the game which is very often a golfer's first touch point is it's usually well not usually but it's quite common and especially for women women seem to be being drawn to these public facilities because they're more welcoming they're more fun they don't have the stigma of being I guess stale male and pale as, as some golf clubs are still perceived to be so I think you know that that's out of that research was I think it was of, of all of the people that were were trying golf for the first time at public public facilities 61 percent of them are women compared to in Australia now I think women are make up 18 percent of uh, golf club memberships here so that's a really big difference so we know women want to play golf they want to try golf but they don't want to do it at golf clubs and I think Sue and I um, we, we both know the reasons behind that because I'm sure we've all felt very unwelcome at times at, at many of the golf clubs we've visited around the world. So uh, I think we need to make our sport more more inviting and more welcoming and, 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 accept, and accept the importance of public facilities, accept that, you know, a putt-putt is golf and a driving range is golf, you know, and as James Sutherland put it in our national strategy conference last week, golf is golf. And then obviously, if people are starting to play golf at these places, then we have to work out what the pathway is for them to to get to the next step. Obviously, they enjoy it. They want to have fun. They don't necessarily want to go and be a member of a golf club. So I think that's that's the big bit here, that the, that the information from the survey and also the data we've got from the, um, the people involved last week is certainly leading us down that path. One point I'd love to jump in on there, Karen, is around the different forms of golf. And you know, a personal example was in the lead up to or the planning for the Royal St George's Open Championship the first time it was being planned prior to the pandemic. Uh, and I'm not sure whether this then did end up going ahead. I suspect it probably didn't just with the, the challenges the restrictions still, but the plan for England golf proposed to the RNA was that they would include in the build-up, it's called the Road to the Open, a crazy putting Road to the Open as one of the themes. And essentially what they did was they said, well, down on that coast where... We've got this very prestigious uh, old golf club that, that's very famous. We've also got eight or nine different seaside crazy putting courses that run all the way along the coast. And given that probably quite a lot of the golfers that were even playing in the Open themselves as professionals were probably introduced to the game on a crazy putting course or something similar when they were a kid, and many of the spectators are the same, it's actually it's quite amazing to think that we're now talking about how to make golf more entertaining for people to get their first introduction to the game, but perhaps actually we've had it sitting there in front of us all along. Absolutely, hundred percent. Um, I mean, I love the fact that you're you're making your strategies based on data, which is music to my ears. <laughs> I was talking to Paul Williams, another Gather member, earlier today. He works for Trackman Range, so does some of the technology that's put into put into ranges. And, you know, I was saying that when I was a kid, then, you know, it's gone from taking a bag of balls over to the practice field where you just whack them and then pick them up and hit them again. So that evolved into a driving range. And now driving ranges have evolved into kind of entertainment centers. And I really do think that the whole, you know, just going to hit balls, making it entertaining, making it welcoming, making it a community is just such an important part of our game and for the longest time you know rangers were kind of poo-pooed a little bit as not being real golf not being you should get people to just you know get out onto golf course sooner and i think that the the rangers and more than capable of you know creating a culture amongst themselves that is probably less intimidating than golf courses and and those golfers may turn into people who go out go out onto the golf course but equally Maybe there's nothing wrong with just people learning to hit balls and using technology and having fun and making it a social event. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, I've been to Top Golf. We've got a Top Golf on the Gold Coast here, about half an hour away from where I live. And I've been a couple of times with friends, a couple that have played a little bit, a couple that have never played before. And they had an absolute ball. And it, it, as we said, it's golf. It, you know, you don't have to have a handicap. Um, you don't have to play 18 holes. You know, we have we have to look at golf differently now. I agree. And if we're looking at the the survey that the AGIC survey that we did, there's we're missing out on so many people. There's so many people out there that have thought about playing golf or have considered playing golf, 
but for whatever reason, they haven't. So we're missing a massive market here. I mean, we've basically here in Australia just ignored the public facilities and driving range and, and other different formats. And I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. Um, you know, golf participation here has been in decline for, for a long, long time. And if we want to change that, I think we have to look at golf very differently. Okay, we're going to pivot a little bit here, Karen. Okay. And so, you know, obviously we've known each other a long time and, you know, mostly through play. And it's been really fascinating for me to watch your career evolve from player into the position that you're in. So first of all, congratulations. I don't think I've really had a chance to to say that. Now, when you were playing, then you played around the world, you won a major championship and, you know, had this very rich, high performance golf experience. How have, how has that experience um, fed into um, not just your perspective of the game, you know, globally, but also, you know, how has being a player affected or influenced you as a leader? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and thank you for the, for, the, uh, for the compliment there. I appreciate it. And yeah, I suppose, you know, being able to travel around the world is, is just an amazing opportunity, you know, for most of my career. And it, it's something I've learned so much about life and the world, but also how golf's played in, in so many different countries. You know, if you play in the Middle East, in Africa, in, in Scandinavia, in the UK, in, in the States, um, you know, I've seen golf and played golf in so many different places. I think it really broadens your horizons and, and challenges you to think differently about the game, which is which is something that I, I shouldn't probably say this, Shepherds, but, you know, I, like you, was a bit of a nerd as well. So I was always, you know, it wasn't just all about golf, uh, all about golf for me. I was always very intrigued and interested in other, in other things as well. So, yeah, I guess that sort of challenged my thinking, you know, how I got into, I guess, the other side of the fence from playing was I decided to join the Players' Council on the Ladies' European Tour. I think it was back in the maybe mid-90s and ended up being the, the chair of that. And then Tim Howland, who was uh, the, the CEO at the time, he actually approached me and said, oh, you know, would you be interested in coming on the board? I think you'd be good board material. And, you know, I jumped at the chance because I knew I wouldn't be playing golf forever. And it was another opportunity to learn. You know, I just I spent my whole life learning and I love it. And so, yeah, just sort of jumped into that and ended up there for a while. And, and when this opportunity came back, came, um, eight years ago kind of been toying with retirements and um, my mum wasn't well so I was kind of thinking that I wanted to come back home anyway so it all worked out really well but yeah I think you know I've always wanted to leave the sport that I love in a better place and I've always tried to you know whatever whatever level it was whether it was players council or board or chair or in this role you just want to leave your sport in a better place especially you know obviously as a woman and managing a woman's tour you know for women and girls obviously that's what I'm very passionate about. And as a board member on the LET, you were um, instrumental in hiring Alex um, her first time around. What was it that you saw in her that you thought, okay, this is someone who can take the LET forward? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd, I'd known Alex actually for quite a few years. She uh, had the same coach as a, a young girl um, in London, um, Lawrence Farmer, that I did at the time and actually played golf with Alex when, you know, Lawrence, well, obviously a but actually played golf with Alex when she's, I think, about 13 or 14. And obviously she went off to the States to college and did amazingly well, obviously, um, you know, in, in terms of, of her, her her golf and also what she did off the golf course, probably more importantly. But Alex actually joined the board about probably six months before she ended up taking over as interim CEO. And I was just so impressed with her her knowledge, obviously. Her smarts are incredible. But just her ability to, as, as a fairly young person back there, her ability to take all of the information in and not make emotional decisions. Just and, and she always knew the right thing to say. That was the one thing that impressed me. And obviously uh, when the CEO at the time departed, you know, Alex sat in, in the role for, for uh, I think it was probably six months. Yeah, and then eventually she, she ended up being appointed as CEO. And, you know, obviously she's back in stint number two and I think it's the best thing that's happened to the tour. You know, she's just a, she's a legend. She's, like I said, you know, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, probably apart from you, Sue, I have to say, but... <laughs> <laughs> but she's uh but she's done a great job obviously you know the deal that they've put together with the LPGA and um and the ladies European tour it's just I think it's just going to continue to grow so yeah it's uh it's worked do out well. You, do you have a chance to 
to work with her now with yeah in your role and her and her so that must be that must be fun yeah it is pretty fun actually yeah um Alex actually came out here in 2020 because we have the two golf New South Wales events co-sanctioned with the ladies European tour so Alex was out here a couple of years ago but yeah we're in contact um quite often about the events and obviously you know just try and keep in the loop at what's going on everything in the world we're we're a long way away from everywhere down here so you've just really got to make sure you sort of keep keep in touch with everyone but uh yeah I mean it's just really exciting to see where the, the let's headed obviously they've had some some rough times the last few years and I think that you know, obviously, having the backing of the LPGA, the support of the RNA, the support of the European Tour, it's it's you know, it's it's definitely heading in the right direction. And you know, I felt so bad for the young players a few years back when they just didn't have enough events to play in, but now it's um it's really tracking well. Mm-hmm. That leads on really to talking about investment, Karen. In your opinion, where do you think the golf industry is missing out on opportunities the most? as it's seeking to bring in new investment, particularly to support the growth of the game. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think we're all very lucky to have the RNA on board. And obviously, they're in terms of what they're doing in golf with their Women in Golf Charter, I think it's just been absolutely fantastic. They've also supported our events down here. They were uh, one of our founding partners for the Player Series as well. As soon as we came up with the concept, uh, we reached out to Dominic Wall, who is the head of you know the Oceania region, and he took it back to his colleagues, and they love the concept. So um, they've been you know, helping us with that as well, which is obviously great. I think you know f- for us, like our organisation down here, that it's very very small. The women's PGA, there's there's three employees. You know, it's it's very very tough, and and our sports market down here is extremely convoluted i mean sport you know for those of you who have been down here sport is life in australia and there's been such an emphasis on women's sport the last probably 10 years women's netball's gone crazy women's cricket women's soccer so it's it's the marketplace is very busy place and there's a lot of sports out there looking for for money and it's very very tough and for government money as well for for corporate sponsorships so i think you know that events like the TPS for instance you know it's a point of difference it ticks the box it ticks inclusive it ticks diverse um, and i think that's the important thing you you want to look at what companies are doing and and align with their strategies and there's so much emphasis now in in the corporate world on diversity and inclusivity you know and women and you know indigenous here in australia that's a a really big focus so i think that we just need to to be really clever about uh, how we do things and and for us working with the pga um, has just been fantastic like i said we've had some great results and a couple of really great uh, commercial outcomes from the work we've done with them so i think you know having a, a whole of golf approach to sponsorship, you know, for us down here in the professional game makes a lot more sense than um, us trying to sell women's golf and the PGA trying to sell men's golfers. And, you know, working with Golf Australia, we can sell the whole of golf, you know, rather than all of us, you know, pulling strings in different directions. And so that it seems like that that approach is going to make you more sustainable uh, financially as a, as a tour in the future. I mean, that, that just makes perfect sense to me and the, the collaborations you've only got X number of sponsors and if they're already interested in sponsoring an event, if you can just tie it all up, then that does seem to make a lot more sense to me. And is another, you know, to me is another pragmatic reason why having um, mixed events makes sense, both, you know, amateur and professionals, you know, just kind of pooled resources a little bit and, uh, you know, hopefully that does make women's golf more sustainable. Yeah, I, I think definitely. I think you're definitely right. It's something that we've identified and um, I think, you know, hopefully it will certainly help us all out down here because it's just, it's tough. It's a tough world we live in at the moment. I mean, you know, COVID, we haven't been as affected as some other places have, but certainly commercial confidence it has been battered a little bit with, with everything that's going on in the world. So, uh yeah, like I said, we you know we just want to listen to what our sponsors want and and really provide them with with whatever we can. So thinking about the approach to a sustainable financial model, we talked the first time, Karen, about how the RNA have supported the project, the the, the mixed tour project that you've been running in Australia, and obviously that was massive to get that support. But how do you convert that model that you launched in twenty twenty to a viable? and sustainable commercial model that sustains that then for the future? Yeah, I think it's, you know, just like I said, we've been very lucky to have the RNA support from from 
you know, go to woe. Um, the PGA were prepared to, to to underwrite the events with ourselves, so obviously that was a big decision for for all of our boards to to take on. So, I think. Like I said, I, you know, having Webex on board now has made a huge difference and that will enable us to, um, you know, to, to go out to the market with a lot more confidence when we're looking for sponsors and know that there's a product there that clearly people want to be involved in. I think that's a really important factor. But I think, you know, for, for the next few years, we put the events together really quickly at the end of last year because we weren't, wasn't, we weren't really sure whether they could happen or, you know, with COVID what was going to happen. And obviously on the women's side with the women's fields, we, we couldn't get full fields because we couldn't get enough players down here. A lot of our players didn't even come home for the summer last year because they would have had to quarantine for two weeks. So, you know, that's going to be the challenge again next year is to try and fill the, the 62 professional spots for the women. But I think moving forward, I think we've, we've got a product that we know works. And I think for us, we've got some great hosts that are going to be in the pipeline for hosting events. We've spoken to Kari Webb. She she really likes the series. I think some point in time she like, would like to host. The same with Jan Stevenson. Uh, and I think all of our leading players just think that it's a really good concept. So I think the confidence that we've got here now, I think that'll enable us to go to governments, again, knowing that this event ticks a lot of the boxes that they're looking for. So, yeah, I think we've got, we've got some options open, but I think, you know, having some really good support so early on is, is really going to stand us in good stead. Where do you stand on the word disruption, you know, relative to the golf industry? In, in what context? Well, I mean, we've, we've talked with a lot of different people in the past 11 months. We've, we've spoken to people who work in, you know, associations like so Amir Malik, who was on for the Muslim Golf Association. We've spoken to people who work in the fashion industry, some who even sit outside the golf industry. They are golfers, but they've sat outside the industry itself and sort of observed it for a few years and are now jumping in. We've talked to people who are working, you know, again, they're an amateur golfer. They have an interest in the game, but they don't work in the industry, but they're from the startup tech world and they're seeing opportunities to solve problems, but they're not just bringing in the solutions. They're also bringing in the culture of startup world to the way that a business runs within the golf industry. And in having all of these conversations, there's a running, you know, a more disruptive way of thinking. They're just, they're, they're looking at it through a different lens. They're seeing the barriers and the challenges traditionally that exist within the industry. They're even experiencing some of them when they're trying to launch things. And then they're just going, well, yeah, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I'm just going to go around that and I'm going to find a new solution. And they're being termed disruptors. And there's kind of a running theme of golf needs to be a more disruptive industry or certainly needs to be more open-minded to disruptive thinking. Where do you stand on that? Do you think there is still missed opportunities in this? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think any time that, you know, we, we have people like that looking to get involved in the game, we have to look at it as an opportunity. Obviously, if we can bring people to the game that, you know, have investment and have money and just want to put a different spin on it, a different angle. And I think we need to be to really, you know, hold our hands out and say, you know, what can we do together? Absolutely. I think it's um, a great opportunity for golf. That's how I would see it. We need more Karen Lunds. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Karen, you won the, the British Open, uh, which is not many people can, can say that. And so to do that, there's an assumption that you must have a very single-minded focus. You know, to reach that level of success as a player, then there, there must be a lot of focus. Yet you've been able to transition away from golf, which, you know, there's the assumption that you were very focused on into leadership positions and and being a, a a leader in in the game in Australia and you know that isn't really common I mean I can't really think of any other winners of the British Open men or women whose careers have taken the pathway that yours has the role now though that you have does require a lot of focus but obviously a focus a different kind of focus not you know on your on your game but you know focusing on how you're going to achieve the the goal and the success that you want um to have within your organization and so do you feel first of all do you feel like you've just kind of been able to switch from your focus from a player to a leader and i should preface this by saying that you know my career has taken a different 
pathway to yours and I did not win the British Open. But, but you're a very, very good player. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but I mean, I just feel that I still have that focus. It's just channeled in a completely different direction. And so, I mean, do you feel the same way about, you know, how you've been able to change your focus from player and the passion that you had for golf into um, your, your leadership position? Yeah, 100%. And the word you said was passion. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, it's, it's a passion for the game. And as a player, obviously, you have that passion. And it's very much about you and your golf, you know, and being the best golfer that you can be. And, and I guess having the experience with the LET, you know, involved in the board and, and the chair there for a while, it certainly it, it, it I had to be very good at splitting those two things and that wasn't always easy. Mm-hmm. I had my chair hat on some of the time and my player hat on other times. So I had to I had to be very good at managing my time and I had to be very good at being able to put things in the background to focus on my golf. So I think that was something that I really learned to do and, and still be in good stead for when I came into this role because I could just I could focus a hundred percent on it. It hasn't been all smooth sailing by any stretch of the imagination. I feel like I've been bashing down doors for eight years to get to the point we're at today where I think we're in a great space and with Golf Australia and the PGA and ourselves working so closely, but it hasn't always been that way. And it's been very frustrating at times and very, very hard to deal with it. You know, a a couple of times I've just at the point, well, look, I can't win this fight. You know, I I can keep fighting, but I don't think I'm going to win this fight. And that's really hard to, you know, to keep working and keep your motivation when, when things just aren't turning out as you want and it's just, you know, you're getting more more and more frustrated, but, you know, you just have to keep seeing the big picture and the end goal. And I think that's probably the, the, the thing that I'm proudest of the most is that to get to the point we're at today, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears um, gone into that. And there's still a lot of work to go. You know, we, we've got a, a lot of work to do to, to get to where we want to do as an industry here. But yeah, it's taken a lot of focus and a lot of determination, I have to say. And and whether or not I would have had that without, you know, a background as a player, as you know, so being a, a female golfer, it's tough to make a living. It's mm-hmm. tough, you know, it's, it's a very, very tough gig. And it still is now for a lot of the women out there. It, it's tough financially. Um, it's tough emotionally being away from your friends and your family and your support group for, for long periods at a time. So I think that background certainly, you know, stood me in good stead to, to guess have the determination and, and just be prepared to, you know, to, to lose battles. You know, that's, that's the hardest thing in golf. You like to win. You don't win very often. And, and in this role, it was a bit the same, really. It was... Um, yeah, <laughs> I lost more battles than I won, but I kept I kept fighting. <laughs> the the way that you frame that makes makes perfect sense because I think there's an assumption that as a golfer, particularly, then your focus and you know the focus is very much on you or you know yourself and your own success. And so then initially it feels a bit of a conflict that then you're switching where the focus is on. In your case now, more of a community. So. You know, you're going from being very much a, an individual into a um, trying to to succeed for a community. But you know, the way that you explained it was was really good. In as much as you know, you've just kind of switched your focus and your passion from your golf into your passion for golf more generally, and trying to um, create opportunities and 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 leave a, a lasting change. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I I don't think I've ever made that much sense before. (laughs) If you say it makes sense, I'm honoured. Karen, I have a couple of questions that, you know, I'm personally interested in hearing your answers. And um, you've been able to make really good ground in Australia with your collaborations and uh, working relationships with different organisations like, you know, the, the PGA of Australia. In your position, what weight do you give the fact that you are a British Open champion? So when you're sitting in meetings in, you know, typically quite an intimidating environment for women, then, you know, what, how does that change the dynamic, the fact that you've won the British Open? Uh, I think early on, I think that my, my playing career and what I did with the LET, I think that that gave me the confidence to, 
to handle yourself in those venues because as you said they can be very intimidating usually it's you know you're in a room with a bunch of guys and you know things are changing now but you know eight years ago when I first started you know it was it was really tough to get your opinion across and be treated with respect um, and treated equally which is ultimately all we wanted what we want in the end so I, I think in the beginning both of those I guess tools gave me the confidence and, and also probably respect but again I think that people involved in the golf industry you know eight years ago when I started this role they didn't really have that much respect for women golfers unfortunately I think it'd be a very different story now you know if I was a Kari Webb or somebody who's been you know our greatest ever player that may have been different but you know I wasn't I was you know semi-successful you know I had a decent career but yeah it, yeah it's, it's it's an interesting one I think now hopefully I'm more respected for what I'm doing off the golf course than on the golf course but but certainly it gave me the confidence to know that you know, I knew about golf. You know, I had a, I had a, a vast knowledge of the game from my experiences, and and that should be respected. And and unfortunately, a lot of time that wasn't. So, it's a it's a funny thing, isn't it? In that you know, playing golf to the level that you did shouldn't really be a predictor of how capable of doing your job that you do now is. But I mean, it, it is in. In some ways, like I said, even for that just initial moment when you're trying to gain respect from, from people. And, uh, you know, I know that many leaders in golf don't have your playing background. And, you know, if they come from a business background and they're men, then, then typically their golf knowledge is irrelevant. But for women sometimes coming into golf, it's almost gets turned on its head where, you know, a strong playing credential that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good as a as a leader um, can really kind of get you off to a to a good start so it is a really interesting dynamic and it seems like you have been able to do more in in terms of pushing the needle than you know with your organization and other organizations so you know it is I find it quite interesting just to think about how you have been able to you know make ground like you have and how much that does rely on your your playing background yeah I think that the the time I spent at LET you know on the various organizations players council then on the board um you know obviously I was pretty green back then and came in and obviously you know 14 years on the board I developed a pretty strong understanding of the business of golf and and how that works so I think it would have been very difficult just to go straight into that role without that sort of experience behind me yeah considering that then for other players who might be looking to move into the type of role that you're in, is that what you would advise them to do? So get onto players boards and, um, or, you know, what other experience do you think would be valuable in addition to knowing golf? Well, I think that, you know, someone like yourself so is, is a great example. You know, you've just, you do, you spent your whole life upskilling. And I think as a golfer, and again, you know, we talked about, you know, before the internet and days that, you know, what, what did you do in your downtime as a golfer where you read a lot and, and I've read a lot about a lot of different things but I think just trying to to keep learning I think that's really important and on tour you do have a lot of time and the girls now and the guys have incredible resources they can study they can do degrees uh, remotely so I would say just to try and keep learning uh, and just keep trying to upskill yourself even if there's you know there's, there's a few little courses obviously as a golfer you know you have some computer skills but you know if you're going to go into you know life beyond that you're going to need to you know improve on on all of your skills really so and I think, again, that's probably where the, uh, the U.S. college system is really good because it does give young women and young men a chance to actually, you know, get a degree and get something behind them. So when they go on tour, because we all know the reality, that very few of them are going to go on and actually be successful touring pros. Um, so it's really important for them to have that behind it. But I would just say just, yeah, keep up skilling whenever you chance. If you, when you get a chance, if you have an opportunity to go on to a, a players' council or a board, you know, or even spend time with, with the people in your organisation, you know, learning from them. I think that's really important. So, yeah, I think, that, you know, just try and as, as a golfer, it's quite funny. I don't know your, your opinion on this, but, you know, when you're on tour, you think you're so busy and you think that, you know, you don't have any time to do anything. But the reality is you have so much downtime. Um, and you could do so much, you know, it's, it's not about just sitting watching Netflix for the whole afternoon when you finish playing, you know, so there's, there's so much time. I think when you get into the real world, you actually realise how busy life can be. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think that I would say just to take those opportunities and, and just keep trying to learn. And, and like I said, there's a lot of platforms out there and 
I know here the PGA in Australia are doing a lot of really positive stuff in terms of trying to give young people that have a passion for golf the opportunity to learn more so they, they can then go on to, to work in the industry, whether that be as a club manager or work in sports administration. There's, there's going to be a lot more opportunities coming up. And do you do anything specifically for your players to kind of help transition away from playing not at the moment. In Australia, the, the PGA, the vocational arm of professional golf. So we are, the WPGA Tour is the tour side. So we are trying to give our players as many opportunities as we can within the PGA. So yeah, I think I think we'd certainly encourage whatever we can. We, we've been doing some work with Bond University here um, in Australia to, to do some study tours for golfers to bring young women out from Japan in their off season to, to give them the opportunity to train down here and and um, upskill themselves. So we're certainly it's certainly something we're going to look look at more in the future. But working more closely with the PGA as they develop that side of the of the business more even more than they're doing now. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And you know, looking back, it would be it would it would be interesting to see kind of how people's career paths change. Because I know that the NFL, for example, then you know they have big organization around. The fact that, you know, their players are going to retire in their 20s, probably. They probably have a lot more money than uh, many women golfers do. But, you know, they already start bridging that gap with um, investment advice, but also skills to help them transition into a different career if if needed. And, you know, I know a golfer's career is longer, but um, it would be interesting if golf tours kind of looked into different ways to help players transition out of play not necessarily just straight into a PGA program or a you know coaching program which I know is obvious and probably you know of interest but you just think of how many great opportunities there would be for playing organizations to help players move away from at the end of their career which as you know is it can be a really difficult and stressful time for players when it's all you've done for 10 20 years or whatever did you have any good role models when you moved from playing into leadership roles yeah I I think I was I was thinking about this one I, I didn't really have I mean the one person I think who had the biggest influence on me was Charlie Meacham the the LPGA commissioner back in the day who was just the most you know, still is the most wonderful gentleman and so respectful to all the players. And I think that he just did the most amazing job. So he was someone I really looked up to, but there weren't really many others. But since I've taken this role, I've had some some really positive mentors. And yeah, I mean, a few people that I've worked with on events have been really helpful and I've learned a lot from them. Yeah, a couple of our board members have, have really jumped out and you know, I've really learned a lot from them as well. So, that, yeah, no one, in, no one in particular, but I just think it's just really important to try and get, you know, the best advice from people. And there's some great mentoring programs down here in Australia now for young women in, in sport and in golf. There's a, a program called the Minerva Movement, which pairs up women athletes with success, very successful C-suite businesswomen. So then they mentor these young women athletes and, and wears just starting to get involved with them and trying to sort of push some of our players over over into that space. So I think that's that's really key. And I think that if I had that been available eight years ago, I would have jumped all over that or when I was playing. So, you know, that there's more stuff like that happening. I think that there's a real um, push for women's sport down here in Australia at the moment. And it's certainly gaining a lot more in popularity. But also, again, as you said, you know, the women athletes don't get paid, you know, that well compared to their male counterparts in most of the sports so I think that you know there's there's a certainly a, a great need for for not just young women golfers but young women athletes to prepare themselves for life after golf and to have somebody that's a super successful businesswoman um, wanting to give back to you and, and help you in that area of your life I think that's just so valuable so yeah there's, there's a lot of stuff like that going on and we're certainly encouraging our members to sort of you know take those opportunities when they present themselves. Yeah, that, that, that really does sound fantastic and, you know, is another great example of how sport and golf has evolved over the last 20 years, starting to think beyond actually just hitting the golf ball as, as being important and thinking of athletes as being a whole person instead of just a player, yeah. which, is, which is really good. That's only got to be good for players.
Kara, my, my last thing that I've been dying to ask you, you know, thinking about your, your role in Australia now, and that is that, you know, if we think about the Solheim Cup, for example, this, this weekend, then there's situations that arise, whether they be rules, uh, snafus, or other incidents where if you look at the situation from a player's perspective, you might look at it very differently than if you look at it from an administrator's perspective or an official's perspective. So um, how do you balance that? Because, you know, you must be pulled in both directions. Yeah, and, and I think that it can be really helpful. I think that to have those two hats on, you know, now I always have my administrator's hat on first and that's the one that I that I wear all the time. But it's also good to have that, um, I guess, that player's hat in your locker if you need it. So, you know, whatever decisions you make. And, you know, and during COVID, obviously, it's it's very tough down here on our players. We, we didn't have our major events this year. And, you know, perhaps an administrator would have uh, that didn't have experience as a as a player or competitor would have just said, "Oh, it's a it's a real shame that we can't do these events, but that's the way it is." And for me, I was heartbroken for our players because I knew how much they love coming home and playing each year down here. So you know, I've always got that in the back of my mind, I suppose. And every decision I make, you know, it's always how does this affect our members? Because ultimately, we're a members organisation. So I think I think it's always helpful. I don't think there's ever a negative there. I think that always having the player's perspective in the back of your mind is, is definitely useful. So, um, yeah, I, I think it can only be a positive for sure. Yeah. And tell us, and Karen, you know, thinking about industry golf community in Australia over the next three years, where do you think the biggest opportunity lies? Yeah, I think that, that we're in a really good spot. As I said, we've got we've got a bit of work to do now. We've 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 put the the wheels in action, if you like, and and we, now we've got or, or we've you know, as I said last week, we've talked the talk. Now we've got to work, walk the walk. But um, I think the opportunity for for women and girls in golf to make golf more welcoming and nurturing um, and comfortable, a, a sport where you know young young women, working women, young girls can go to a facility or a golf club and not be intimidated, just to be able to go and have fun. I think that's the the important thing you know golf golf is a game and it's a sport you know we, we focus so much on competition here in Australia everything's on you know you have to have club club medals and club championships and but I think the reality we're finding is people just want to go out and have fun when they play golf not everyone cares about their handicap or, or cares about their club championship you know so I think that that's the biggest opportunity we have here is is to try and get more people playing more golf and and just try and create a better environment for them you know so so they can have fun ultimately you know that's what people want to do they want to go out and have fun yeah there was a there was a reflection from me kind of thinking back to previous roles in governing bodies and you know national governing bodies even at the rna and you know there was almost a it's almost a first question in the interviews is sort of oh you play golf would you play what's your handicap and what's your experience and it, it holds probably it's interesting and it, it sounds innocent but it, it really is holding more weight than that which doesn't really make sense and now you kind of look back that's just really backwards in terms of recruitment processes if you want to move an industry forward yeah. Yeah, so true it is absolutely and you know the more people we can get in from outside the game you know fresh perspectives different ideas it's just you know, we all know golf's been a great game for, for many, many years, but it's evolving and we have to, you know, the world's evolving. It's it's a vastly changed world than what we lived in 50 years ago. But, you know, in, in many cases, golf hasn't moved with the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and if you think even as like an amateur golfer, you know, if you, if you manage to get down to, say, a one handicap, then you get 99% of the amateurs in your club who look at you and think you're the best thing since sliced bread. You know, you're such an amazing player. You're in the top few players in the club so therefore you know everything about the game you you must therefore be the right person to answer questions abc that person then has some sort of obvious experience to be able to then advise on developing the game which isn't necessarily the case and i think that does in some respects i've observed it sort of bleeding even into the the professional game too you know and there's lots of great pga professionals out there but there's also just a sort of assumption by the general amateur club member that a PGA professional, obviously the you know they're a pro, they're the pro, so they're the best player. Obviously, then they're the best coach. Obviously, they're the best club fitter. Obviously, they're the best you know advisor on the rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And there are some pros that cover a lot of these bases extremely well, but there's also some specialists that go into certain areas and don't really do any of the other bits. So I think there's there's almost a bit of an over-reliance that you know, good players therefore know how to develop the game. And when you look at some of the best advancements of the sport over recent years, arguably they've come from people kind of looking at the sport from the outside. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So true. Yeah. Well, I did it a study with PGA trainees to try and get a sense of what they valued in terms of being instructors. And the number one thing that came out was they valued teaching elite players. And so back to one of Karen's initial comments, which I agree with the importance that public facilities have and the role that instruction has within public facilities of being able to introduce people to the game and keep them in the game. You know, there's oftentimes a a misfit between the workforce that we're training and what we actually need to be happening in the field to get people engaged. And so, you know, unfortunately, we've still got a ways to go where a lot of, not all, but a lot of Um, people coming through training, PGA training programs, value teaching elite players. They don't value teaching Joe Schmo at a public facility, which arguably is more important to us as an industry than, than teaching elite players. Yeah, that's really interesting. Not totally surprising, but it's really interesting. And, and you're so right. You know, we need to make sure we've got the right people that are out there that are passionate about growing the game, not passionate about growing their own business. I think there's a big difference. The only thing I would disagree with is that, you know, I think perhaps one of the problems that we we have with growing the game is we kind of associate it with it being, you know, almost like a charitable cause. And you know, I don't, I don't know why it has to be, you know, why growing the game can also be a good business model. You know, if you had a good coaching staff at public facilities, they would do a great job of growing the game. They would also have a great business because they have so many new players coming into the game. And so I, I do think that it, it can also be a great business opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that so, I mean, you know, young coaches probably see your Butch Harmons and, and all of these, you know, famous coaches out there and they probably just want to be like them, you know, obviously very wealthy, influential, um, you know, and they see them as their role model rather than, you know, maybe the teachers on the driving range that, that you know, probably gives way more to the game than, than any of these, uh, you know, established coaches. Yeah, I mean, I can look back on some of the examples of, um, volunteers that were brought in in a national program in Scotland, and this has been done in other countries. And there's, you know, there's some programs around uh, Europe now that are popping up with activators. Uh, it's not necessarily PGA professionals that are the, the most keen people to start delivering coaching at the bottom of the pyramid, for want of a better phrase. When in reality, it is a huge business opportunity, but if they don't see that yet, perhaps volunteers are actually best place because sometimes they don't have preconceived ideas about, you know, this is a new golfer, therefore they must want a competition, they must want to lower their handicap, etc., etc. This is just a group of either young kids or adults who just want to have a bit of fun and experience this game that has brought me some joy. So therefore, they're actually in many cases, there's a lot of very effective volunteers to introduce the game. Also with kids, they're very good at do, delivering fun sessions because they're not worried about the technique side of things and they're a little bit scared to delve too much into that. So it's, okay, we'll train you to teach a safe and fun environment. And then from there, people can sort of self, self-explore self and learn anyway, which as we know from a PGA sort of coaching perspective is actually the right way you really want people to try and learn anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, down here we have um, people that are called community instructors. So we have a lot of golf clubs in Australia that are out in the middle of nowhere that many of them don't have a, a golf pro there. So we rely really heavily on the community instructors to, to help, the, you know, to teach everyone really in, in a lot of the remote areas. So I really agree with you. And we do that really well in other sports here in Australia. Um, and we, I think we should do it more. As you said, if, if they can teach them to have fun, I guess, share their passion for the game, 
I think that's, you know, gold when you're starting out in golf. You know, if you can teach a few of the, the very, very basic fundamentals, like how to hold the club and how to stand and, and that sort of stuff and teach people just to enjoy it, then that's, that's really valuable. Well, Karen, I can't say how much of an honour it's been for me, Andy, to have our first British Open champion on as a guest. It's been fascinating, particularly because you've made that transition into working in the sport and leading the sport in such an influential position in such a large golfing country. And just listening to all your insights, particularly around the sort of, the, you know, the real trailblazing events, but also how that came about, the collaborations that that's led to, the future commitments and collaborations between organisations, all fascinating and very valuable. And hopefully the rest of the golfing world can, can take a listen to and apply in their own locations. And also just listening to the, the sort of grit and determination, and shall we say, bounce back ability that a tour professional can then bring to see through the processes that you've had to do to get to where you are now as an organization. It's all been fascinating. Thank you very much. And Sue, as always, an absolute pleasure to have your support and collaboration in doing one of these conversations. You bring the new angle, which I never think of, and it just adds another level of interest, a new dimension and a deeper sort of level of insight. So thank you again for taking the time to do that. Much appreciated. And Karen, just before we close off, is there any sort of final message or to the Gather community or any final words? No, I just, I think you guys are doing uh, some wonderful work out there. Obviously, love following um, your website and your social channels. And uh, no, it's been a pleasure catching up with you, Colin, and you too, uh, Sue. It's been a long while since we've had a good chat. So uh, yeah, no, just keep keep fighting the good fight and, and keep up the great work, guys. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Karen, it's been great, great seeing you and chatting and when the world gets back to traveling again, then, you know, hopefully catch up in person sometime. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Pleasure.